0: Welcome to the Urgent Matters Podcast. This is a series where leading experts from around the world share with us their latest insights into overactive bladder. I'm your host, Professor Paul Abrams, and I'm delighted that you have joined us for this latest instalment. Well, welcome to this podcast, and we're going to talk about the unique characteristics of overactive bladder in the adult male. And I'm delighted to welcome James Urey, who's a consultant urologist from South Africa. He qualified at the University of Witwatersrand and he's a little bit unusual for a urologist because he's got a degree in genetics and we might ask him some piercing questions about genetics uh, during this uh, interesting discussion. He worked for 10 years at Gray's Hospital in Peter uh, but latterly has been in Johannesburg. He takes a great interest in the training of his uh, young urologists and also in their research projects, and he's had a lot to do with lower urinary tract dysfunction. So welcome, James. It's, it's nice to discuss these issues with you.
1: Thank you, Paul. And, and it's indeed an honour to be joining this podcast from a cold winter's evening in Johannesburg. But more of an honour for me is to be joining the podcast with someone like you, um, As a registrar in urology and as a young consultant, I've been well aware of the massive contribution you've made to urology in the world, and I'm in awe of of joining this podcast with you.
0: Okay. Um, James, I'd like to ask you first about the epidemiology, and maybe we can drift into genetics about that, uh, and particularly about the treatment patterns of of adult men who've been diagnosed with overactive bladder. Of course, sometimes this is also complicated by a second diagnosis of benign prosthetic obstruction.
1: Thank you, Paul. Um, before we start, perhaps we can take a step back. I-, I recall as a registrar in neurology struggling around the definitions of these terms, and I think it's really important for anyone listening to this podcast to have a clear understanding of exactly what we're talking about. So, I thought maybe I'd, I'd take a step back before answering the question about epidemiology and maybe just run through with you, if you wouldn't mind, some of the definitions of the terms we're going to be using. Um, if we look at overactive bladder, which is what this podcast is about, overactive bladder in men, um, I think it's important to understand that it's a symptom complex characterized primarily by urinary urgency with or without urgent continence often with associated frequency and nocturia, but in the absence of any other pathology. This is a distinct condition compared to detrusor overactivity, which is a urodynamic finding and is characterized by involuntary detrusor contractions during bladder filling. And I think young urologists and trainees often think of the two as being the same, but they're certainly not. Detrusor overactivity may be associated with the symptom complex of overactive bladder, but it's not the same as overactive bladder. And I think we all know, um, as as trainees, we learned this, that detrusor activity can be neurogenic or non-neurogenic. And I don't want to get into that in too much detail, but just to point out that it's not the same as overactive bladder. When we look at symptoms like frequency, urgency, incontinence, and nocturia, once again, definitions are really important here. And I think we would fall back on the International Continent Society's definitions. And once again, I'm pleased to have Paul on board because he is a member of the International Continent Society Scientific Committee, a very broad definition of frequency would be the perception of voiding too frequently during the day. And this places the burden really on the patient to identify that they have frequency because everyone's got a different perspective on what is too frequent. More specific definitions can be applied such as voiding more than eight times during the day or voiding more frequently than every two hours. And different definitions of these symptoms change the way we understand their impact. Nocturia is defined as one or more voids per night however an alternate definition could be used of more than two voids per night. Um, Paul perhaps would you like to comment on those definitions I'm I'm sure you were instrumental in the developing of them.
0: Well I think yeah that's very important and and I'm pleased you you mentioned the symptom of urgency first because as you've said, urgency is the key symptom. And if you haven't got urgency, you haven't got overactive bladder syndrome. And I think that's one reason why uh, there was some confusion about what was OAB, because in the original definition, if you just had frequency, you could be said to have OAB, and that was wrong. So we now know that the patient must be saying, I have to rush to the bathroom uh, because I'm scared I'll leak if I don't get there soon. And that's quite clear. And It's gratifying that Hashim's work shows that actually in men it's a bit easier because the correlations between overactive bladder and detrusor overactivity are much closer than they are in women. And if a man tells you he has to rush to the bathroom uh, because he will leak, then you can almost guarantee that he will have detrusor overactivity on urodynamics. So, so that's a bit of a saving grace and makes life slightly easier when you're talking to men with more than one possible cause for their LUTs, as I know you're going to talk to us about later.
1: Um, so if we move on, thanks, Paul, to the the epidemiology, and and you said I'd be able to shed some light on the genetics. Genetics was the beginning of my career many years ago, so I'm not sure if I can shed as much light as, as, as you would like, but um, certainly looking at epidemiology, I think we would all agree that in men, overactive bladder is probably an underdiagnosed as well as an undertreated condition. Studies which have looked at it across populations have set the prevalence of overactive bladder in men to between 10 and 16 percent, and we, we know from these studies that it's a significant cause of morbidity. The inability to sit through a meeting or complete a car journey or a game of golf or enjoy another activity has a major impact on the lives of men affected by overactive bladder. And I, I think it was probably a joke, but uh, emergence of products such as the Euro Club, which is a faux golf club, which doubles as a secret urinal for passing urine on the golf course, um, just is a testament to the prevalence of overactive bladder and basically the shame and inconvenience which men associate with it. I've noticed in South Africa in the last few years a major increase in the number of male incontinence products available in pharmacies which I think also reflects the fact that this problem is much wider spread than we used to think and it really does have a major impact on the lives of men.
0: That's certainly true.
1: Did you Have you come across this Euro club golf club at all Paul?
0: Well, no, it's funny, though, that you should mention that because I played golf yesterday morning and two out of the four people in our group went to pass urine in the bushes. (laughs) So, you know, in Britain, we always make sure that golf courses
1: have a lot of trees. Absolutely. Um, Just thinking back to the definitions, I I also find it, and maybe you can comment on this, quite challenging when asking men about these symptoms because they also don't understand the definitions. Um, so sometimes I try and phrase it in terminology which is easy to understand. And I, I ask my patients, are you the sort of patient who knows where every toilet in the shopping mall is? And the people who do have overactive bladder, sort of the eyes light up and say, yes, that's me. Um, so it's important for us to understand the symptoms, but we can phrase it to our patients in a way that's more meaningful to them.
0: I, I think that's very important. And certainly getting patients and people to come up with their symptoms of overactive bladder depends really on the doctors having a sympathetic view and understanding that these sort of questions really make the patient relax. The patient then believes that Dr. Uri really understands what overactive bladder is. He understands what I'm having to put up with. So I think these directed questions are really useful because they've chosen to come to see you because of their problem. So it is an extremely common condition and as you rightly point out it increases with age and with a similar increase in prevalence in both men and women, slightly more in men, but still not that different from women. so I always ask the question of the young urologist. It was always said that the prostate causes overactive bladder in men. well how come all, how come almost as many women have the same problem they don 't have prostates what 's it due to them so uh, i 'd like your thoughts on on the on the cause and, and maybe the cause being uh, possibly, dare I say, cerebral degeneration as the common etiology between men and women. What do you think about that?
1: Well, certainly we'll, we'll come onto to it in more detail in a second, Prof. Um, the, the one thing I would say there is that some part of the overactive bladder symptom complex in men does relate to the prostate, in my opinion, um, and we'll get into that in a bit more detail shortly. But then there's a there's an entire separate cause for it which is unrelated to the prostate, and I think it's important in our understanding of the of this of the symptom complex to understand that that they are two very distinct um, underlying etiologies um, and pathologies, and that we need to manage them appropriately. So I, I just took a, a couple of other thoughts from those studies, um, and one of them was in terms of the impact on the quality of life and daily activities, which men who have overactive bladder symptoms experience. And certainly there was a significant impact on the quality of life, daily activities, mental health, and sexual fa- function of men with overactive bladder symptoms. In the Mulsim study, the consultation rate for overactive bladder symptoms was 61%, but less than one-third of patients who sought help received medication. So this, this study wasn't, a, I'm not sure this was a community-based study, but certainly a fair number of patients were seeking treatment for their symptoms, but less than a third of them actually ended up receiving medication. Most patients who were interviewed were already trying conservative measures such as restricting fluid intake and reducing activities outside the home, and these measures already impact the quality of life of the patients. Men had significant bother with their symptoms, and increased health-seeking behavior occurred in increasing number with increasing number of symptoms. So frequency plus urgency plus nocturia was more likely to induce health seeking behavior than just one symptom alone. I think what's quite important here in terms of the effects on the quality of life is that Nocturia had a major impact on the quality of life, perhaps even more so than urgency. And I'll be interested in Professor Abrams' opinion on this. If you can't get a good night's sleep, you can't function well during the day, and that impacts your ability to work, your ability to enjoy your your hobbies or sports, and your general sense of well-being. What do you think of that in terms of the degree of bother from nocturia versus the other symptoms, Prof?
0: No, well, I absolutely agree that, uh, I mean, urgency is troublesome. Urgency incontinence, of course, can be a bit of a disaster. uh, But nocturia, if it's occurring every night, is very debilitating to many people, particularly if they can't get back to sleep. And, of course, in the elderly patient, and this would include uh, men and women, that you've got various possibilities as the cause for nocturia, maybe even more than one cause in the same patient. And what do you do about nocturnal polyuria? Because, of course, that's very common in in both elderly men and elderly women. And, and of course, that's not a urological condition. How do you approach that?
1: Well, certainly it falls, it falls to us to identify the patient with nocturnal polyuria as opposed to nocturia because quite often the patients will – perceive that symptom as coming from their urinary tract rather than being a, a general medical or an endocrinological problem. Um, and I, I think that asking the right questions um, can certainly lead us or give us the, the right index of suspicion to identify someone who's got nocturnal polyuria. I personally think that a simple um, study like doing a data diary will, will help identify whether there's an increased urine production at night as opposed to an increased frequency of urination at night and really what it will come down to, once again, I'll, I'll, you're welcome to make an input here, Prof. Um, if you're having multiple small voids at night and waking up frequently because you have a strong urgency to wee and not being able to empty very much, then I'd be thinking more along the lines of nocturia. But if you're having copious volumes of urine frequently at night, I'm thinking along the lines of nocturnal polyuria, and I think the Bladder Diary would would help us identify those two. Is there anything else that that would that you use which helps in that situation?
0: No, and I agree, um, but looking at overactive bladder on its own, do you feel that men get treated for that on its merits, or do they get treated for the prostate rather than for overactive bladder?
1: Well, that is a, really a key question in in understanding the treatment of overactive bladder in men, and I think a lot of us as urologists or and general practitioners in the community mistakenly believe that the overactive bladder symptoms are due primarily to the benign prostatic obstruction, or BPO, which the men are experiencing. And so even though men present with overactive bladder symptoms to doctors who should be experienced in the management of these symptoms, they still often get inappropriately treated because of that misconception. And I think some of the studies which we we're looking at did highlight this point, point. Um, there's an, obviously, we know there's an overlap in epidemiology of, of BPO and, and LUTs and overactive bladder, but the treatment of the um, benign prostatic obstruction and low urinary tract symptoms, men were often treated as first-line treatment with medication directed at the obstructive symptoms, whether or not they presented with predominantly benign prostatic obstruction or overactive bladder symptoms. And of over 12,000 male OAB patients without benign prostatic obstruction, 11% of men received overactive bladder agents only, 22% received benign prostatic obstruction agents only, and 6% received both, with 61% receiving neither. So I'm just going to repeat that. A study of 12,000 male overactive bladder patients without benign prostatic obstruction, 11% of men received overactive bladder treatment only, 22% received benign prostatic obstruction treatment only, 6% received both, and 61% received neither. So I think what's really important here is that often men don't present with these symptoms for a variety of reasons. When they do, they're often incorrectly identified as having benign prostatic obstruction as the sole cause of their symptoms and treated appropriately. Seldom are they treated for both or for overactive bladder and many men receive no treatment at all when treatment may benefit them what's your experience with with um with men presenting with for treatment with both symptoms of benign prostate obstruction and overactive bladder
0: well i know i agree with you that i think the automatic reflex certainly in primary care is to give all men a prostate drug because still I think many clinicians and nurses believe that lower urinary tract symptoms in older men all come from the prostate. And as you're pointing out, this isn't the case. And it's particularly worrying that, as you say, 60% of men don't get any treatment at all, even though they've taken the trouble to go and see a healthcare professional and ask for help. I mean, how do we get past that apparent block?
1: It's a very important question, Paul. It's, it's quite a tricky one to work out what's going to solve the problem. I think there are some legitimate concerns amongst doctors about treating elderly patients. And certainly when I see an elderly patient with overactive bladder symptoms, I do take a really hard look at all the other medications they're on. Um, it is quite daunting when a patient comes in with a list of 10 or 12 other medications that they're on. And you certainly worry about polypharmacy and drug interactions in these patients. Luckily, and we'll talk about this just now, we have um, a medication available now it has been available for several years which doesn't work on the cholinergic pathway. Um, So we we are a little bit more relaxed or I'm a little bit more relaxed about using that in older patients. Um, But certainly there is a legitimate concern there from from primary care providers about, about treating patients and that may be one of the things that drives them not to put these men onto treatment. Another thing may be the idea that perhaps by treating the overactive bladder symptoms, you reduce the strength of the detrusor muscle and increase the risk of urinary retention. And I think that this thought is really based on the fallacy, and perhaps you can also chime in here, Paul, if you've got any thoughts on it, but I'm not aware of any clinical evidence-based medicine which supports with the use of beta-3 agonists or anticholinergics, and we're going to talk about treatment in a lot more detail shortly. that that shows an increased risk of urinary retention in men with benign prostatic obstruction.
0: So when you see a patient who you're pretty sure has more than one cause for their LUTs, do you like to start with one set of symptoms uh, and then add another drug if they are not improved and maybe even a third drug? Uh, How do you approach patients in this situation?
1: So this is my approach, which once again, I'd be absolutely... um, welcome for you to, to comment or, or even teach me in this setting. Um, I generally try and identify which symptoms are providing bother and and try and identify by doing the appropriate investigation, such as the Euroflow test um, in the rooms, um, where the, the majority of the, the bother is coming from. If the bother is very clearly coming from benign prosthetic obstruction as well as overactive bladder type symptoms, I tend to start patients on both... Uh, alpha blocker, and a um, beta-3 agonist or mirror at the same time. Um, some patients who have predominantly overactive bladder symptoms and are not obstructed on a uroflow test or don't have a high post-nutrition residual urine, I'll just start on overactive bladder treatment. And then sometimes I will, down the line, add on a third treatment like a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor um, if, if it's deemed, or if it's clinically appropriate as we sort of work through the symptoms. Do, do you agree with that, Paul?
0: No, I do. I th- I think I think attacking the bothersome symptoms first is likely to be much appreciated by the patient. And as you say, if they have seem to have an equivalent um, responsibility from overactive bladder and post- prostatic obstruction, then I see no problem with starting uh, both drugs at the same time. Uh, what do you then do if you also show from the bladder diary they have nocturnal polyuria? Because this isn't that common. This isn't. This is not uncommon.
1: Absolutely, as a scenario. Um, and I, I first of all look at the medications that the patients on. So, in some of these patients, on furosemide for cardiac failure, and, and then there's not much we can do about it. I look at the patients' nocturnal fluid habits and see if we can optimize those so cut down on caffeine in the afternoons and evenings, cut down on alcohol. Although it's not not usually very successful in telling the patients not to to have a glass of wine or a whiskey in the evenings. Um, and then I also, from a medical point of view, try to identify if there's an underlying medical cause for the nocturnal polyuria. But I, I think, in that setting, it really is, a little bit outside the scope of a, a urologist. So I tend to refer those patients on to a general physician or endocrinologist. Um, once I've once I've seen the bladder diarrhea. and I've ruled out obvious causes of nocturnal polyuria like fluid habits and and that sort of thing. Um, In the UK, are the urologists mostly treating nocturnal polyuria?
0: Well, of course, uh, unfortunately, many of these men are over 65 and therefore you are advised not to give desmopressin. I mean, I think that's good advice. So uh, the one drug that could help them is difficult to use because, as we know, they may get hyponatremia with uh, various serious consequences. So I think we have to cope in in the ways you suggest. But it does seem a fundamental problem. And I wonder whether we can make it clearer to to primary care physicians, particularly how they should approach the man who probably has more than one cause for their LUTS. I mean, the EAU guidelines go some way to doing that, don't they?
1: Absolutely. I guess, once again, the problem there is that the EAU guidelines are well, I mean, in South Africa, we basically follow the EAU guidelines as our guidelines. We don't have enough urologists in South Africa to have an independent set of guidelines, and, and we're firmly um, behind the EAU guidelines in terms of what we do. But general practitioners who are often the first port of call for these patients um, don't read those kinds of guidelines. And perhaps the time has come for, and, and these things probably do exist, but a very clear treatment algorithm um, on the at the general practitioner level for managing men with both overactive bladder and benign prostatic obstruction. So basically lower urinary tract symptoms in men. Certainly, if I think back to my medical school training, which is really where most general practitioners would have had the majority of their knowledge about male lower urinary tract symptoms, I, I think that the understanding of the treatment algorithm and the investigation and, and differentiating between the two sets of symptoms would, would probably be quite poor. and a well well put together concise guideline for the general practitioner level may be useful. Uh, such a thing may already exist though.
0: No, I, I think that's a very good suggestion because uh, general practitioners wouldn't intuitively go to the EAU guidelines, would they, to look things up. So I think you're quite right. We ought to really be translating these for... For primary care, so it is a bit clearer that you've really got to think about the three main causes of LUTs in men being, as you've said, overactive bladder, benign prosthetic obstruction, and nocturnal polyuria, and explaining how common it is for uh, them to occur in the same patient. So I think that's one factor. I think, lastly, what I'd like to ask you is about men in general men in general are pretty hopeless aren't they in looking after their own health i mean we are like ostriches um, we like to put our head in the sand until something disastrously goes wrong we we keep our problems to ourselves and usually or often it's the wife that pushes the husband uh, into your into your front door through your front door of the clinic and says my husband has got a problem and the husband looks Sheepish. Can we do anything to reduce the threshold at which men come and tell us about their OAB and other LUTs?
1: That's an excellent question, Prof. And just to go back to your your anecdote, I, every second man who comes to see me, I, I ask them what's wrong, and they say, "Oh, my wife booked the appointment for me." Um, so it is it is really a, a serious problem. And I guess in male health, there are concerns around prostate health, which are not related to bothersome symptomatology like um, prostate cancer screening, and men are really bad at that as well. So there's a whole lot of places where we can get men to improve, but the answer to how we do that, I don't know if I have an easy answer there. Obviously, patient education is is important, but I don't know how to reach out to men to make them aware that these symptoms can be treated. Um, I, I think most men just think of it as a natural progress of aging. And I often ask men, um, how do you pass urine? Just as a sort of introductory question. How do you feel about the way you wee? And they're like, oh, it's not great, but that's normal for aging, isn't it? Um, So there's this conception that our urination is going to, and I'm talking now as a man, our urination is going to deteriorate as we get older. We're going to not be able to wee against the wall anymore, but dribble on our shoes. We're going to have to get up five times at night. And we just accept that. And the only way we're going to change that is if we can get it out there to men that these symptoms don't need to be accepted and that they can be treated. And we've got good, safe and appropriate medications on the market these days to treat these symptoms. And how to do that, not so easy, but I mean, obviously a patient education program would be the way to go there, I think. And I think slowly this information will filter through as it filters from the specialists to the general practitioners and then into the community, um, eventually we'll get to the point where we don't stick our heads in the sand. But I, I certainly don't have an easy answer to that. What are, you, what are your thoughts, Prof. Uh,
0: well, I just wonder whether uh, social media and apps uh, are the way forward and trying to get ah yes, absolutely trying to get men interested in their own health and in self-care. Uh, you've already talked about some ways in which men could help themselves. Uh, do you hold out any hopes for social media in the elderly?
1: So that's what's, what's going to be my exact comment. I think in 10 or 15 years' time, the, the current 40-year-olds will then be 55 or the 50-year-olds will be 65 and starting to have these symptoms with with more bother will will still will be on social media. I'm, I'm not sure how many... Men who currently in the age group where we commonly see these symptoms are on social media. Of course, there are some, um, but we should be looking towards that sort of platform in future to, to get information out there. And, and I know there's there's quite a nice app talking about apps, which is an electronic bladder diary, which you can download. I think it's called Urine Control. Um, I'm not sure if I'm now to say that on the podcast, but certainly in my younger patients who need to have better diaries, I just direct them directly to that app. The older patients, though, still tend to bring me in bits of paper with, with scribbled pencil readings on of their daily diaries, and that's okay for now. But as we, as we, the current millennial population gets older, we'll be able to use more and more of these technologies in our patients with these symptoms. And it's obviously going to take time to disseminate this information through to people. And in in 20 years' time, we may look back and say, "Wow, most of our guys, most of the men we're treating know about this now because of social media." and Um, I don't don't think we're quite there yet
0: No, okay Well it's been great talking to you and thank you very much I think you brought to us some very important points about epidemiology that overactive bladder is just as common in men as it is in women and indeed in old age it's a bit commoner in men than it is in women so there are a lot of men out there who need our support and our active help in managing their symptoms and as you've said improving their quality of life the issue is for older men and for their clinicians, of course, as you've made it very clear, is the more there's often more than one cause for their lower urinary tract symptoms, and the primary causes are OAB, of course, prostatic obstruction and nocturnal polyuria. And you've you've really sold us, I think, the concept of treating the most bothersome symptoms first. But if there's two sets of bothersome symptoms, say overactive bladder, And symptoms that seem to be coming from the prostate, you treat both of those at the same time. And then we have the task of education. And uh, as you say, maybe social media will be the answer, but we need to educate all healthcare professionals, I think, and try and reach the men. So thank you very much indeed for your participation in this podcast.
1: Prof. Abrams, it's been an absolute honor for me to be part of the team and to meet you via virtual meeting like this is once once again as i said a great honor and i think it's a very comprehensive topic this and there's a, a lot to still be said we, we didn't look much at etiology um, of overactive bladder in men um, we didn't look that much at alternate treatment options so there are still a lot of things that that we we can learn about this topic and we can we can teach but i, I think we really have focused in on the, really, the key areas that are going to be important to our patients and and important to our colleagues in in sharing knowledge about this topic. So I thank you. And um, as I said, a great honor for me to be part of this project.
0: Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Urgent Matters podcast series. And we hope that this has helped share further insights into overactive bladder. We would like to thank Estelas for their kind support in sponsoring this podcast. Please stay tuned for the next episode where we continue to explore key insights from experts in the field of OAB.